Welcome to Heart Talk. I'm your host, writer, educator, and creator, Tracy Michelle. Work-life balance is such a buzz phrase nowadays. Everyone wants to figure out how to be amazing and do amazing things all at once across every area of our lives. Recently, someone sent me a message after I released a creative project and was all like, Tracy, you are hashtag goals. You're a wife, a mother, a professor, a writer, a filmmaker. You can do it all. <laughs> and while, yes, it stroked my ego a little bit to hear someone seemingly compliment me in this way the real down and dirty truth is this it's a lie (laughs) as much as I want to as much as I may even manufacture a persona that appears to I can't and I don't do it all at least not all at the same time And I firmly believe that the oh-so-elusive work-life balance can never be achieved in any way that's fruitful anyway until we all come to terms with that fact. We can do all that we dream, all that we feel God has placed on our hearts, um, just not all at the same time. And being able to move with the ebbs and flows of life is a critical component for success, I think, in any area of life. In fact, the name of my company, New Season Books and Media, is a testament, if not a reminder, of that very thing. There are seasons in our lives. There will be mountain highs and valley lows. There will be times when you must sit everything down to tend to your family and those you love. There will be times when your family will be called to sacrifice for your creative work and what you feel you've been called to do. As Shonda Rahm said in her commencement speech at Dartmouth, um, you'll never get your sea legs. You'll never feel 100% okay. And yet, for me, it's important that we learn to grace ourselves and grace others in all of these moments. The journey that we are on will swallow us whole if we don't. Finding balance is really just about knowing which season God has you in and not lingering too long in one when another awaits, even when the one that awaits you isn't part of the original plan. We know how that is, right? There's a current that God is using, I think, to take us to our destinies, and it's probably not a good idea to swim against it. One of the places where I struggle with this very concept of keeping balance is in my work as an educator. In addition to my creative work as a writer, a storyteller, and entrepreneurship as a business owner, I am a professor of English at a local college in my area. So much of my experience as a black woman educator in higher education has been filled with these touchstone moments of great joy, those moments when my students grasp a concept or we have this amazing discussion, um, and frankly, great dismay when I'm forced to deal with some of the politics that one has to deal with in higher education. Being unapologetically black can be challenging in these spaces. Being an advocate for the marginalized in a way that isn't denigrating to them is 
too often challenged in a way that just doesn't make sense to me sometimes. And then you add the typical bureaucracy that shows up in so many large organizations. And well, it's hard to fly with some of those weights, you know. That's why in the final episode of this season, I wanted to gather together other black women professors, other black women educators to discuss the nuances and complexities of this work that we do. I had the most life-giving conversation with Dr. Debonair Oates Primus, Assistant Professor of English at Community College of Philadelphia, Dr. Nakia Primus-Smith, Associate Professor of Education at Millersville University, and Lucia Gabayakanga. Um, assistant professor of English, um, also at Community College of Philadelphia. But before you dive into this conversation, I want you to know that while this is our last episode of this season, Heart Talk will be airing what I'm calling story time episodes in between while we're on a hiatus. And these episodes will be where I am sharing with you all kinds of amazing stories, fiction and nonfiction, written by myself and other authors. So I want you to keep listening, keep subscribing, reviewing and sharing. And I will be back with season two of Heart Talk in mid-April, early May. Now, let's dig into this amazing conversation. So thank you, everyone, beautiful human beings, for joining me at Heart Talk. Um, we have, um, we're actually recording this at the New Season Book Space in Lansdowne, PA. So for those of you who are listening, um, you may hear some background noise. That's okay. We're, we're working in community, um, but hopefully you'll be able to hear everything that we're saying because we have an amazing show uh, for you today. Um, the, the women that are sitting in front of me, each one of them, I can tell you, I have a incredibly deep respect for, um, and they bring a diversity of like just ideas and thoughts um, to the work that they do on their campuses, um, as well as just in general. But as we do at Heart Talk, um, we open every one of these uh, episodes with the question, how's your heart? So fam, how's your heart? Are we going to start with uh, Debonair? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll start uh, with Debonair. Sure. <laughs> how's your um, heart today? It's fine. It's fine. It's a little overwhelmed um, at the moment, but I think it's in a good place. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, Lucia? Full. Mm. Full, overflowing. Mm. Oh yes, not always good. <laughs> <laughs> so the fullness there's, is not a good fullness. There's a lot of mixture. Okay. There's a mixture yeah. of things happening I in my heart you. right now. I got you. Yeah, I got but, you. But I'm here. Yes. I'm here. And that—that's the blessing. Yes, really, I'm here. Give really? thanks. Give thanks. Um, and Nakia, I think I'll second that emotion. It's 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 full and not always in the most positive ways. But I'm here and I am learning and letting those things be um be new lessons and have new faith mm. for what's next mm. awesome awesome um so we have full hearts we have overwhelmed hearts 
Um, and I think, if I'm honest, that's a great way to describe <laughs> what it means to be a black woman professor, um, particularly in spaces that um, can sometimes not be as inviting. So I'd love for us to just open up and talk a little bit about your why, right? Like, you know, some people would argue you don't have to be uh, a professor. You don't have to be doing what you do. So. I'm very interested in why you decided to become an educator, particularly in higher education. Like, what was your motivation for doing the work that you do? And anybody can just jump in. I think for me, the why, the why captured me before I was able to, like, understand it, if that makes sense. So um, I try to be as obedient as possible to doing things that are of service. And I started my career as an educator in the K through 12 space. And I loved it, it was great. Um, I found joy, I found learning. Um, interestingly enough, I was also often in a predominantly white space in that realm as well. And so some of the things that I currently see um, are not new to me, they just have a different dimension and a whole host of like other things tied to it. But my road to being an educator stemmed from the really great teachers that I had, and, and sometimes the really bad ones, the ones who second-guessed me, the ones who told me that I wasn't gonna be anything, the ones who said, uh, you should study this because that's the limit of your possibility. And so for me, when I got to the second, uh, when I got to higher education, I wanted to be a place, a person, a space for students who are like me, who are second-guessed, who are, you know, limited in their possibility, but also to raise the bar and set a standard that you can and be better. Um, yeah, I think for me it was a lot more, um, I don't want to say intentional, but I come from a low-income um, family, single teenage mom, and college was really, really important, and like making my plan beforehand was really important. So when the plan changed, because it did, when you come from like a low-income family, and my mom, I was first generation, so my mom was learning everything as we were going along when I was going to college. So we were we were picking the careers together, and she was picking based on what she thought would be lucrative, which is funny because it was journalism. I like to write, so she was like, "You should major in journalism." And I did it because that's what she said. And also because I just was like, I also need to make money. Money was something that I always, was something really permanent in our lives that I knew we didn't have. And, you know, there's a lot of good pressure on me to, like, you know, succeed and change these cycles that was in my family. And I hated journalism when I was an undergrad. But I didn't change it for a while because I was like, this is what's going to make us money. So I took African-American literature as a minor to, like, give me some joy because journalism was not giving me joy. I was on the school newspaper. I was taking journalism classes, but I hated them. So I took an African-American lit course and one of my professors, I went to a PWI and he was um, amazing. And one day he came in sick to class. He was really sick and he never did this before, but he was like, I want everybody in the class to be honest with me. Who read today? It was a Charles Chestnut short story, Wife of His Youth. I remember the story. And needing to show off, and flex, I raised my hand high, <laughs> and I was like one of the only ones in the class who raised their hand. And he was like, Debonair, I don't feel well, my voice is really not good, I'm gonna need you to lead the class today. And I immediately regretted raising my hand. <laughs> <laughs> but I did it because, you know, I, 
my imposter syndrome was kicking in, but he also saw something in me. And I led the class, and at first they were not taking me seriously, but I jumped in and I picked an excerpt and we went in and I started analyzing it. And I could just, I looked over at him and he just was grinning. Almost as if this was like something he had planned. Mm. And after class, he was like, so let's talk about grad school. And I was like, mm, I think I'm gonna do journalism. He was like, come to my office sometime this week. We, you, you should be in grad school. And then we sort of, he became one of my mentors and it became this plan of like, of you need to be in a college classroom, you need to be doing this. And I felt it. And I had a conversation with like, like my mom afterwards and we talked about the new plan. It took her time because she was like fixated on this. Like you should be writing, you should, I'm like, yeah, but this, this real cool too. So that's sort of like my, yeah. And it just, and it felt right. And the more I did it, when I, once I broke into higher ed, I knew it was right. I knew it was a space I was supposed to be in. Awesome. And just, you know, to shout you out, Debonair just recently defended her dissertation. So she is. I was doctor. wondering when you was going to slide in that. <laughs> she is thank you, doctor. Thank you. We got two doctors at the table, yeah. I should say. Dr. Nakia Primus Smith and Dr. Debonair Oates Primus. We also share and, and you share Primus. Yes, I love that. <laughs> All right. So what's your why, Lucia? Um, I think the why is probably a combination of uh, both of the, you know, both of those responses, the previous responses. Um, Yeah, to fast forward things in my brain, because this story could go on forever. I think that when I went into undergrad, also at a PWI, that was probably like the beginning of like one of the most transformative experiences in my life. Um, came from a very like strict traditional African background and the eldest girl, all of that. So uh, there was a lot of early and quick growing up that needed to be done. And I feel like when I went to college, I regressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I loved it. It was a PWI, but it was like liberatory. It was, you know, I yeah. could really like grow in a way that I wanted to. And yeah, my, my, my parents really had this idea of who I should be at that point. Completely not what I had imagined for myself, but decided to kind of go in that direction for a little bit until it failed miserably <laughs> and then fell into the English um, world. And, and funnily enough, it's, Painfully shy as I was, uh, English and theater. That was my background. And so I I grew a lot through that. And then um, never thinking about teaching. I think I just walked into that Hmm. somehow. Um, Just following my passion, in Hmm. a sense. My passion took me there and a professor. Mm -hmm. So when I went to grad school, um, again, didn't, you know, I had to support myself on my own. No fellowships, no anything like that. And so I... um, started adjuncting by the request of one of my, one of the faculty members. Uh, Didn't think I could do it, but it was creative writing. Mm. And I swear if it wasn't because it was creative writing, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now talking Mm -hmm. (laughs) about this because I wasn't really interested in all the other subjects. There was something about creative writing and that type of um, engagement from students and just pulling together everything that I'd ever done, everything I'd ever learned, was passionate about. I just kind of really came to life, mm-hmm. being able to talk about that. And then that just kind of evolved into other things. And um, it's funny that we're talking about this because of late I've been circling back to that. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's what's missing. I need to get back to that. I've become so much so more the academic in a way that I didn't expect or mm-hmm. kind of really want to be. <laughs> right, right. And if 
kind of shifted and left off like the more artistic, the other parts of me. And so that's kind of, it's interesting we're having this conversation now because Deb and I are always talking about this kind of crossroads that we're at right now. Like, where are we going? What are we doing now? And especially like after Toni Morrison and mm-hmm. uh, Kamal Brathwaite, who was like, yes. I mean, I walked around with his book like a novel during grad school. Like he, he really heavily influenced all the type of writing that I've ever done. So, um, so it's kind of making me go back and revisit parts of myself that I feel are just there along the periphery. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And it's actually um, a really good segue to my why because myself, um, I was 100% the writer artist, right? Um, and um, was asked, you know, very similarly to be an adjunct um, now almost uh, 20 years ago um, to adjunct to teach a creative writing course um, and a poetry course. Um, and that opportunity to share something that I loved and to midwife, so to speak, other writers um, was what kind of moved me into academia. Um, and if I'm honest, um, I was never really quite sure how long I wanted to be there. (laughs) Um, It took me, I mean, I started teaching at the college level um, in 2002, and it took me, you know, to 2013 to even begin applying for full-time positions. Like, I just wasn't interested in that. Um, And I also saw the politics that was happening which we'll talk about in a second (laughs) but I was like yeah like I I, I just like I can't give my energy to that because I got to give my energy to my books and to my art right um and what heart heart talk is about is like the intersection of art and story right and a lot of times people don't believe that teachers that professors are creators but I think if there's ever uh a creator that's outside of the sort of traditionally defined artist realm, it would be a teacher, mm-hmm. right? Because every day we are creating and recreating in the classroom, I believe. Um, and so that's how I have to see it in order to sustain <laughs> my time there. And now that I'm, you know, doing the academic thing, like the full time, the tenure, the all, all that kind of yeah. thing, um, I too, Lou, think about how it interferes or intersects with my artistic work right and I still haven't figured out like that part of the why like I love my students I love teaching my students there's a lot about academia that I don't love though and I but I have to give my energy to because I've decided that this security route right because it's secure like I get good benefits you know what I'm saying (laughs) you know what I'm saying so you know I gotta you know so what and then like all the heart talk, heart space, like all of this that you guys are looking at, like how does that fit in what I'm doing on campus? So yeah, I think that part of my why is just about, you know, having a place to share my art and and creativity and to help others like me do that. Um, So speaking of stories, right? um, What were some of the things when you first started teaching right, that the stories that kind of informed or influenced your early experiences, like that first semester in the classroom. Because I know the first story I told me was, somebody told me was a white woman who told me my look was too wild and that I could never be uh, a full-time professor at our college um, because 
<laughs> at our college, oh, right? Wow. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, Hard talk that. listeners. I <laughs> um, Hard talk <laughs> listeners. I um, uh, Debonair and and Lucy are my colleagues, and so uh, yeah, I was told that my look was too wild wow. after she went to my LinkedIn page. My my look, um, and you know, I don't know if wild <laughs> was a euphemism for black, um, but yes. <laughs> so um, yeah. So that was one of the early stories um, as an adjunct that I heard. So I'd love to hear some stories from you about like, what were some of the early things that informed, influenced, or like blew your mind? Because I know there's somebody that's listening right now that are, that their first semester and they're a black woman professor, maybe at a PWI, maybe not. And they're like, what the hell is going on right now? And so what was your like first introduction? Oh man. Well, I was really, I was really young. Um, I got my first college teaching job right out of grad school. Like, I graduated in 2007. I got my first teaching gig in fall of 2007. So, yeah, I came in, I think I might have been 24, 24 um, years old. So I was really, I was self-conscious for so many reasons. I was self-conscious about my age. I was self-conscious that my first gig was at a, a PWI. And it was at a elite PWI. Like a lot of my students um, were from upper middle class um, backgrounds, and all of my colleagues. I also should say I went to the grad school that I taught at after I got out. So I was just like, I was really scared. But one early story: I was working at a suburban community college, and I've already told you this story a little. I, I just told you this story the other day, actually, for the first time. But um, it was. I was uh, I had assigned Juno Diaz for one of my for one of the readings for a one on one class and it was um the short story in Drown where he's having his first homoerotic experience with his like with his best friend. And uh I give it to the students, you know, we're analyzing, there's a whole assignment around it, and I get pulled into my chair's office and he's like, I need to show you this letter. It was a letter that this parent wrote. Apparently, he was a police officer in the county, and he was very upset that I had given them um, writers that weren't American. Mm. Those were his words. And my chair, you can tell, was un, um, unabashed about telling me that he had no idea how to deal with this. So I go in his office my first semester, and he turns his computer toward me, and he's like, please read this, and then let me know how I should move forward. And I remember thinking, like, I know I'm new, but this doesn't feel right. This is not how it should go. You want me to tell you how to move forward with this letter. So I, wrote, I, I read the letter, and it was really racist. He said that he, again, it was a comp 101 course. So he was like, I thought my, student, my kid was going to be reading American writers. And, you know, why is she giving them gay literature? And I mean, it was so many different things. And then it started attacking me as a teacher and what his student, I mean, what his student, what his son was telling him about my teaching methods, about how none of the writers they were reading were American, even though I was giving them African-American, you know what I mean? So I read the whole letter, I'm, and like, I remember thinking to myself, because I'm naturally a snarky person, like, okay, respond in a way that's going to let you keep your job. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, so I read the whole thing, and I was oh, like. Oh, you're supposed to do that? I didn't know. I know, I know, I know right? <laughs> so I <laughs> I look at him, and you can tell he's, like, really interested in my facial expressions as I'm reading the letter. My chair is while I'm, while I'm reading it. And while I'm doing it, he's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, like, you know. And then afterwards, I'm like, wow, this is, this is really upsetting. You know, I have, like, scripts now. I didn't have them then, but I got my script. I'm like, what words to use? And it's like, this is really upsetting. And he says, I know. So what should we do? And I was like, I think you should write back to him and tell him 
that, you know, we're in college and unless his, you know, son has filled out a FERPA, you can't talk to him about it and I'm not talking to him about it and I'm going to see you later. All right, I was like, I'm going to let you get to that. And then he said to me, he said, yeah, but what are we going to do about these readings you've chosen? Oh, wow. Yup. And then even though he didn't tell me to not do it then, he did handle it. And then every step of the way, every draft of a letter that he wrote to this parent, because it's been on and on, he was sending me first. And I was like helping him draft and giving him feedback. And then I would give him feedback. And if he disagreed with some of my feedback, if it was too much, he would be like, what if we said it this way? And I was just like annoyed. But at the end of the semester, what ended up like what ended up happening at this particular institution was all of a sudden he made like a special rule for me. Nobody else had to submit what their readings were going to be before the syllabus was due. But he was like, "Let's do this from now on. I know you're new, and let's just um, every semester before you give me your syllabus, let me just look at the readings that you've chosen, and then let's have a conversation about it." Uh-huh. And I remember being like, "Okay, this is where we are." And yeah. It, it was it like it was a really great entry like uh, like entry into the politics part right instead of what you know and not just that there was no line in his response to that parent that was calling the parent out for what the parent was right like I was waiting for him to be like are you going to be like and this is not this is not aligned with the mission of this college right because we love our, like this diversity language and I wanted to be like shouldn't this be simple shouldn't this be like this kind of criticism. It's not welcome here at this college and use the college's mission to support that statement. You know, put my administrator's hat on. (laughs) Isn't that what y'all do, I wanted to say, right? Like, remind folks, you know, why you sent them to this school, but that wasn't the case at all. So, yeah, that's a story that, like, sticks in me because it also framed, it made me scared for the first time when it came to my teaching. I'm usually really confident in that part of my job. I love that part the most, right? Like, and I, I, I was... I was really self-conscious about what readings I was giving them, how I was teaching in the class. I hope we talk about this later, but um, there's a feeling when you're an African-American or a person of color in these college classrooms of this idea of like, my students weren't just students, I realized, right? Some of them were like, not just looking at me for the content, right? Which is what Lou says this all the time. I was so devoted to the skills. I'm like, I'm teaching you a particular set of skills in this class. But what I realized was they were also looking at me like, yeah, but we are, like, I felt heavily judged. Mm -hmm. That student in particular knew that he had some type of power in that class. After that, he did too, right? The comments that he would make in class. And... And I internalized that. And what ended up happening was every teaching assignment I gave, I kept, like, double-checking myself over and over again. And that sort of became, like, the first five years of my career. I just, like, right, just feeling like I needed to be perfect all the time. My Every assignment had to be perfect. Even if I made a mistake and the student called it and they were saying it in a friendly way in class, they could they could see it on my face that I was, ta- I was so defensive. A typo mm-hmm. I was taking really defensively. Yeah. Because I felt like I was in this space where not just my students, but, you know, my bosses and all of them were like making sure that they let me know all the time. They would say things to me like outside of class, like, how is it going, Deb? Is everything okay now? Right? As if like I had started off with this like really bad incident and I was and then I became obsessed with changing my professional reputation after that. You know, I <laughs> I think um maybe because of my home training, my family, <laughs> I just walked into teaching already on the defensive, like already picking up from what Deb is, is talking about. Like you're just going to have to work 500 extra, you know, paces harder just to get like a mediocre response, even in the classroom, you know? So I think I, I led with that. So a lot of my early years of teaching kind of started off that way, just feeling like I had to 
do everything perfectly, you know, um, no typo, like nothing, and had to anticipate every question and be able to answer everything fully and completely. Like, so, and then that got, I just got weary. <laughs> I just got tired. I just got tired after, after a while with, with all of that. And then I also realized, because I tend to stay to myself, when I started speaking with other faculty members during the, like, my first use, years of teaching, I realized I'm doing way more, yeah. <laughs> way more, for way less drama. <laughs> than everyone else's so I said uh-huh okay correct I'm gonna course correct here <laughs> you know and not that I started like doing less I just think work looked different yeah you know I started um kind of devoting more times to kind of strategic ways of getting students to get into these conversations mm -hmm. like instead of you're not going to bring that energy here yeah. so I'm going to diffuse it and have you all talk about that amongst yourselves and you all will debate that now just facilitate it so I started kind of falling more into the role of like a facilitator I think those first few years before I kind of got got my bearings I also did start teaching at the college that I you know that I had graduated from as an undergrad and that was a predominantly white institution and uh, while that experience was great, there was there were definitely some racial issues, like we, uh, so many issues to go into right now, dealing with xenophobia, all sorts of things, you know. Um, and so I already knew what I was getting into when I started teaching there as well. But since I already had made a kind of name for myself, and I was a token because I spoke well. <laughs> <laughs> my, my English professors told me I spoke really well for an English oh major. <laughs> right. This is what I do. Okay. All right. So <laughs> aren't we all here for, okay. So, uh, yeah, I already kind of knew what I was getting into. But I think the one thing that maybe has stayed with me is when I first started teaching, and I thought that this was like mad, a lot of hate. But one of my favorite teachers told me, don't stay here. Mm. He said, you're going to need to leave. He's like, find other things to do, but do not stay here, <laughs> you know? And I, at first I was a little like taken aback, like what? I mean, knowing all the racial, all the everything that was going on for some reason, I felt maybe even within that regard that I had still something to prove. And also this idea of prestige, going and teaching for certain mm -hmm. types of like, mm -hmm. you know, colleges and what that looks like to everyone in either in your family, your community, whatever that means, I think. For some reason, I felt it was important to, mm -hmm. to stay there for as long yeah. as I, I could until I couldn't anymore, which, again, very short-lived. Um, but I think those sorts of stories. Um, and then as I continued teaching, there were a lot of other stories that dealt with things like oh, our students' language, that type of language, this demographic sort of language, um, about ways for me to... Uh, be medi not me be mediocre, but just unsolicited advice um, about don't do too much, you're doing too much yeah. for these mm -hmm. students. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, so those started kind of creeping in, mm -hmm. especially at uh, the place that I started teaching at, the, you know, we started teaching at not too long ago. <laughs> um, we'll get into that later, but you know, I was yeah. like, uh, yeah. these are different brand of folks here that, you know, they don't want me to do anything. The other ones on the... <laughs> They were like, go, do more, That's do more. So it gave That's me so more true. freedom, even as, you know, whether mm. I fly or fall. I, I just had like, and I always thought it was because I started teaching at pr private liberal arts colleges and other colleges have more politics. So I just had a lot of free, like the first African lit course I taught was at my alma mater. They didn't want to see anything. They, they just said, okay, go for it, teach it. 
They didn't ask to see a syllabus. Uh-huh. Didn't, mm-hmm. They didn't know what I was teaching people's kids. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but I found that there was a lot more resistance with folks who are here for a reason. Who are called, who are called, who are also giving me advice about don't do too much. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know how our students our, are. And, and just and that language has really never gone away. Um, and I think I kind of derailed the conversation a little bit, but, but those were some of the comments, those are some of the experiences mm-hmm. that kind of reframe this really interesting shifting from teaching at a PWI to yeah. MSI, as we're calling them now, you know, and, and the folks you meet along that journey mm-hmm. who feel called to do that work. It's really interesting as, as well. And we're going to probably saying, get into that later. Called, I'm saying, you know, I'm saying <laughs> called because this is the language that that's used, right? They were called <laughs> like imperialism. Anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm <laughs> Uh, my first semester in academia. I think just kind of piggybacking off of what has been said, one of the things that I realized early, like I had a confidence about my teaching because I had been trained in K-12 and at, at mostly at a predominantly white space. So like dealing with parents and dealing with those kinds of expectations, I was already like I had an armor built up for those kinds of things. What I didn't expect um, was that my office was going to be placed right next to the only other black person in my department. <laughs> and at the same time, everyone else in the department would be doing everything possible, especially in that first semester, to pit us against each other wow. or to keep us away from each other or to um, make it competition without saying so now this woman has since become my mentor and I know for a fact that I missed out on the first two years on the tenure track having somebody have my back in a real way because of this nonsense Um, and I didn't anticipate the the little comments that people would say and how politicized like and first of all we're I'm african-american I'm black I'm you know born here and she is from Nigeria and so like even their misconception misconceptions about what that meant oh we put you two together because you would have something something in common like that that was said to me um or you would get along like just the assumption so so I remember my first semester feeling very uncomfortable like associating with this woman because it's like they were playing out some game and I didn't want to be a part of that um and it was to my detriment the first semester the first year on the tenure track was incredibly isolating. Um, I would go into my office and I would cry and I would be looking for jobs. Like, I, I don't need this. I know how to teach, I know how to do, I took a pay cut to work at this daggone place. Um, so I would just go get another job. But you know, as I started interacting with students, specifically the students who, like you said, are, are in need of some Sojourner Truths to help pave away or you know some people don't like that emotional labor but it's so necessary when there's students some who look like us and some who don't who are expected to do things that no one's ever taught them how to do and we're taking all their money and making them go into debt for nothing and so for me once I found a rhythm like I'm gonna just do what I know to do and I open myself to not 
believe some of the things or be a pawn in other people's politicized games. Like that was a that was a like a whole wake up call. Like y'all people think y'all really like NASA or like the NSA or or like you know on the CIA. Like y'all got some clout. Like like what the heck? Why is this so difficult? Why is everything a process? Why can't just it's funny? I was listening to a podcast with chat with Bozeman and he was like, it's like more than one black person in a room can't exist. Uh-huh. And it, I felt that way. Mm. Like if, if I went into a space and I spoke up and the other person spoke up, oh, that was your, that's your quota for the rest of the semester. Uh, Hit the limit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Don't speak until three meetings from now. <laughs> and I didn't anticipate that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for, if I'm thinking about uh, a younger, and I was young too, you know, I've been at my university for six years now. And if I'm thinking about that person who's in that first um, semester trying to figure things out, placement plays a whole, like I didn't realize, another part of it my office is, my office is right in front of the elevator. I am a token. You come into the department, it's me and this other black woman, like see who we got here? So I keep my door closed. (laughs) (laughs) But that those politics, are real and they and they are then and I realized especially now that I'm you know over the tenure hump and all that they're made to make you prove yourself in ways that grad school did not prepare you for and it's made to put you in an, an antagonistic position with other people of color and not to that then my, my advice would be you came there for a reason and don't let those people do that and so that was a lesson that I had to learn in my first semester because I, I literally was taken off track from a very good mentor for several years because of this this thing i i i all of you all just kind of like hit stuff and i it's so funny when you were uh nakia talking about um you know some stuff just doesn't have to be that hard uh lose lucia's and debonair's face was just like just opened up like yes like one of the things that is so challenging is the um the red tape the bureaucracy the politics the this is the way we've always done it so we can't possibly think of another way and yet that lives alongside all of this conversation about diversity and innovation. And I'm like, yeah, like, like, you know, you're shooting yourself in the foot. I hate to use that kind of language, but like, like you're asking for these phenomenal people to come into this space, like, and you're, but you're not giving any supports for them while, when they get here. (laughs) Huh? When you you just said you're asking for all these people of color to be in this space, and I'm like, were they were they asking us to? Be well, part you of know that's interesting because they they weren't necessarily asking; mm-hmm. where they felt forced, you know, exactly. um, by now, the. And that's how they treat us, though. right? Like, yeah, you, that's true. If you reframe it that way, then their then their reactions make a whole bunch of sense. Yeah, right. Like the more I've learned about the way institutional power structures work in higher ed, the more I'm now I'm like, okay, now I get this, right? Like, because what we don't know. And people who want to get into higher ed, there are people of color like you to understand this. A lot of the times, I, I know Neil. I was walk, I was hired in this really hostile and toxic culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That I, but I didn't know I was that that was my like entree. And when I 
when I realized it was, I started sharing that information. And you know what happened when you started sharing, right? I did it on purpose, though. Right? I think it speaks to like the foundation of Lucia and I's friendship, right? Because what happened with you could have clear, like, could have been us. We were hired in the same time, and we were told by lots of folks that this just didn't happen that much. Them hiring two black women, along with um, the other cohort, they were like, they were like white. Well, most of them um, were white, and yeah. But our foundation of our friendship was we like like was me sharing what was supposed to be a secret about how we were not initially part of the finalist to be sent up. Um, in it, that's like that was me, that was sharing that with Lou. Like, I just found out that you know, we were um, not part of the hiring committee's picks, initial. initial picks at all, and that they were told uh, by senior leadership that their initial group of folks were not diverse and they were given names and we were on that list. <laughs> like, we were, all, it wasn't even like, oh, go back, and go back. it was like. Please interview this person, that person, and Lou and I were on that list of folks that they had to do it. And, and yeah, so, yeah. Like, but once I realized that these are the spaces, and Neil, that uh, I didn't say this earlier, but I also run a diversity fellowship, like initiative at the college, where I'm trying for us to intentionally um, diversify our faculty. I, I know that this continues at the college that, no, it is, right? So, what we don't tell folks, and I can't tell aspiring faculty is, right? It's not just politics. We are literally trying to get you in a space where you are not welcome. Literally, you are not welcome if a program like mine has to exist. You are not welcome if I spend 75% of my time talking to department leaders and chairs and trying to convince them that we need more faculty who look like us. <laughs> this is not a space where they wanted us. And when they do, like we always say, Lou, they want it like they want us to be grateful. Mm. That, no, that was the expectation. They're they treat us this way and they focus on process because what they want us to do is to be really grateful that you even got in here, right? Mm -hmm. In these really subtle ways they do this. Lots of ways when we first got hired, we were like, you know, the, like those gestures of, yeah, and we're so happy for you to be here. Like even their ownership, like they own the house. That's mm -hmm. what they feel like. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I'm living in, like, you know, like I'm a... Like you're uh, a guest. I'm a mm -hmm. guest in this house, right? <laughs> Welcome to this space and they right and like they take ownership over it that's not a space where they want diverse perspectives it is it's not and once i've learned that i've realized that's why all this feels so hard yeah because they, right they were forced to welcome me into this house so it's like they're like we didn't invite you that's not what we wanted and we damn sure don't want you now to have some diverse perspectives because diversity at the political level is lucrative that's why it happens diversity is lucrative and so, and, I, and I've learned this because I've sat on six hiring committees in the time that I've been at my university, and intentionally so in that first year, because I knew something was shady when I got hired, mm -hmm. because there were people I wanted to meet during my interview, all of a sudden they're not available. Yeah. Okay. And you learn how the sausage is made, and you're like, oh yeah. my God. <laughs> I have heard some of the most racist, sexist, mm -hmm. homophobic mm -hmm. stuff in committee meetings talking about we value diversity on one hand, but out the same breath, mm -hmm. this person is too loud. And I'm not like, what do you mean too loud? Like, what does that mean exactly? Um, and so for me, talking to a future faculty member, 
the status quo exists, but diversity and all those trends are lucrative. So Massa's exactly. not going to look, look away for a dollar if some, you know, little black people and brown people and yellow mm-hmm. people could get in the door and give us some money and get some more students to take out some, some student loans. But that ain't, my, that ain't my fight. My fight is making sure that once you're here, you're not going to try to break me like some wild horse. Mm-hmm. That's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, y'all it's fire it's fire 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 no um i want us like to just continue okay because <laughs> why not <laughs> um but let's like you know i, I want if you, i want to quantify it right so i want like if you could give like the top two obstacles that a person is going to a black woman would face entering into these kinds of spaces and and that could be now we talked a little bit about like administration right like or just getting through the door or what happens when you get through the door the stories that you're told when you get through the door but even like with students right like how students perceive you in the classroom I mean we teach at a school that's predominantly you know students of color and yet I still sometimes struggle in the classroom with from them seeing me as equally if not more valuable to them in their education um, than my white colleague, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, even that internalized kind of, you know, racism or whatever you want to call it, where they, they, or they, they view my, me as auntie mm-hmm. instead of no <laughs> professor, yes. right? So the boundaries are a little bit weird. So, like, across the board, like, if you had to, like, give two, like, the top two or three things that um, a black woman professor entering, particularly if they're entering, because what's interesting about our situation is that our students are predominantly students of color, but we still work in an environment, as, as far as our other faculty, that's predominantly white. So... Um, I'm just curious as to like if you had to do like a one, two, like first this, then this or something like that, what that would be and what that would look like. I think one of the first things is that your expertise, however gained, however right, however elevated is not the default. And so you're going to be questioned and maybe not outrightly so like, hey, can you explain or I don't understand but the impetus for students and your, your, and your peers to question what you know or second-guess you is going to be there inherently. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. And so I think depending on where you come from in your frame of mind and how you value what you've studied with your creative spirit, your artistic ability, your, your knowledge – just knowing that that's going to happen, I think will help. Um, and I think most people don't anticipate the, the subtle ways it happens mm-hmm. for, for you. It could be in the event of a syllabus, like I know what I'm doing. Like I, I, this is my, this is my world. This is my lane, but it all, it also can come in effect when a student questions a grade and you're like, well, wait a second. How, like I am the expert, you are the student. Mm-hmm. And so for, for a lot of people, get it that gets them off kilter like wait a second why are you doing this for me it's been helpful to just remember that my knowledge especially the body that houses this knowledge is not the default looked at as valuable so I am not going to fight that I am going to either choose to ignore you which happens I ignore a whole bunch of emails that sound stupid or (laughs) I'm gonna take a moment like listen I have three degrees I don't need yours. So trust what I'm saying. And it takes a, it takes a while to get to mm. that point. But I feel like if you get to that point faster, you, you lessen the heartache that you have. The second thing I think 
for um, somebody to realize is that you need to decide how many hats you want to wear in your space because because you are an anomaly to many many people you will you have the potential to be worked like a slave horse Um, (laughs) and i think that you being um proactive about your no i tell people all the time you know i don't know if it was mama maya angelou or oprah whoever said no is a complete sentence and i and empowering my no has been liberating especially after that first couple of semesters no I don't need to give you an explanation. I don't need to give you a rationale. Um, and being okay with that, even in the face of like, well, I got to do tenure and I got to do this. Like, I'm not going to kill myself for that. Right. Um, yeah, to, big, to piggyback off of that, I think one thing that I feel was an issue with dealing with students, faculty, admin is, well, one, boundaries or lack thereof. <laughs> And this involves, you know, again, what I mentioned earlier, unsolicited advice, being the world's mule, (laughs) you know, Um, or just like crossing personal boundaries, Mm. just, you know. Um, But then there's there's this other interesting thing about belonging and the the questioning of that. I think that's kind of what you were talking about as well. Just like at every turn questioning and just different, oh, you're, are you a student or a faculty? Like Mm -hmm. questions like that. Um, I had one faculty member offer to pay me money (laughs) because we were both at the copy center. This was a few years back. And I told her, oh, we both teach in the same building. My room is next to yours, dummy. I don't mind taking, I see you're running late. I was trying to be collegial from once. <laughs> yeah, and, and that went completely off. And she, I don't know who she thought I was, but she got up, <laughs> clearly. Mm-hmm. And so she offered to give, like, oh, how much money should I get? I'm not, why would I give, I just told you we teach in the same building. My room is right next to yours. You don't see us, no, none of that. So visibility, belonging, mm-hmm. a questioning of that even with students, whether it's the knowledge or your look or your whatever about, I I mean, I've had faculty members saying, oh, questioning, like not questioning, but making snarky remarks about like clothes, like appearance stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't, even though I have very strong views about what some motherfuckers wear to school, (laughs) I don't come to them and say that. I keep that to myself because I have home training. (laughs) Again, boundaries and belonging, right? right? Like, and I think there was another, there have been all these incidences over the years that it's just like, maybe that's the first thing I think of is one, you don't, not only you not only don't to me have home training but you never had to move through the world that way to be able to acknowledge that first like my belong my place my belong where i belong in relation to you it's always like you lead first and that's your privilege you know Mm -hmm. like i've had faculty who will just walk into a classroom when i'm still teaching like minutes before you know or or, or, or just do weird things like that or stay too long consistently, even though I make it a point to say you need to go. <laughs> right, right. You know, like things like that, that just kind of are, are just annoying. But for me, maybe because of the way I move through life are just small, really passive, not small, but passive aggressive things that show me you don't you don't think I belong here. I shouldn't be here right now, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially considering how we came in and how we were hired, mm-hmm. you know, and getting comments like, oh, we're shocked, <laughs> yeah, 
you know right one right. of the faculty members i saw this i told dub like i was doing some house cleaning and i saw one of my rejection letters was from someone who's right across the hall from me now wow. i was like yeah <laughs> 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 if I, was, I was like, I should take that shit to, I mean, take that to my door <laughs> and highlight her name. <laughs> right, 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 right. Look at me now. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, to that point, I, that's actually the, the same woman who told me my look was too wild and I would never be able to teach there full time. Um, was sitting right in front of me when during the faculty meeting they announced me as a new full-time faculty and I flipped my I flipped my cherry red hair and, <laughs> I, <love laughs> and I said like you know but it's interesting because it, um, both of you kind of hit on it like the questioning of expertise yeah. right um, but be, even beyond the questioning it's the devaluing of that expertise because I even remember like um, you know where you know we would uh, we were part of a movement on campus. <laughs> uh, you guys are laughing. <laughs> but we were part of a movement on campus to, to, to bring up issues related to racial inequality and, you know, and all the things. And, um, you know, a lot of our foundational backing for what we were saying was from cr the, the critical race theory, right? Like this, this thing that has been studied for now 40 40 some 50 something years right and there were so many people who um there were so many people who like disregarded the whole theory who said that critical race theory was a crock that it didn't exist like 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 okay so Derek bell and all those people that like <laughs> you know that actually that's what i mean about them not wanting them I want us in their space. But to the extent that you would um, denounce an entire body of scholarly work in order to like, you know, like, so to me, and, and I guess I, I, it's still mind blowing to me because that to me takes a lot of energy to do. And it, and it, it just goes, it, it demonstrates the links that some um, white faculty will go to and, and white admin will go to to retain their power and to retain their, you know, to maintain the status quo, right? Because we are disruptions of that, clearly, right? According to them, we're disruptions of their uh, status quo. And so, like, for me, if I had to give, you know, my top two things for somebody to do coming into this space is... And y'all know where I'm going. Like, take care of yourself. Yeah. Take yeah. care of your, your mental health and your physical health. Um, because the way this stuff gets in you and the way, like, I mean, there have been days when we've run into each other on campus um, or I've run, you know, seen you or me and you have talked. And my, like, you can literally see the stuff on you. Like, girl, it's that kind of day, huh? You know, like, it is a lot to carry and that kind of um, constant microaggressions, constant, you know, disruption causes disruption in your in your emotional self, in your physical self. And that's the reason why there are statistics that show the amount of sickness, um, especially those who are on the, you know, pursuing doctorates. Uh, I'm like more power to both of you all for getting your you know, completing your dissertations or a lot of people are ABD forever, you know what I'm saying? Because they just, that next step is so mentally draining, especially if they're um, a woman of color. So I would say like you put in your self-care, soul care plan prior to your first semester, right? So that you have a exit point from all of this. Yeah. And it's Thank not yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't answer phone calls. Don't answer emails. Don't do nothing on that. You're absolutely right.
Yeah, I was gonna say protect your time. It's something that my, like that my um, my chair of my dissertation told me when she didn't respond to me one time, and I wasn't even like complaining. I was just sending her a follow up email, and she was like. I'm sorry, but I'm protecting my time today. I will get back to you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but then I also stole it, like, in my career. Because I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing. And I agree with you. One thing that I did, I know folks think I don't protect my time. Because I am the kind of person that Because you busy. I, I am busy. <laughs> I am very busy. But you can, you can, Lou can attest to this. There are just certain things I don't do. I just told you this morning that an administrator sent me a um, text message. 6.30 on a Saturday morning. I know, and I was telling Lou on the phone, I was like, yeah, I'll get back to her um, either tomorrow night or Monday. Like, and I tell my students this often because we live in this, like, in this digital world now where they have so much access to us. And, you know, they got the Canvas app, and I got the app, and they sending me emails, and it's all times of the day and night. And when I get back to class, they're like, did you see this? I'm like, yes, I did. I mm-hmm. did. And, I'm, and I was busy. And it was Saturday, and and, I, and they let I, I I get this too, but I say it with a straight face, like it was Saturday. So I did see it, and then I went and you know, and then I someone I even told them like what I did on Saturday on purpose. I'm like, and then I got my hair done, and then I got a manicure and a pedicure, and then I went to like hang like with my niece, and then I went home and binged um, Scandal because I'm like I'm doing that again, and they just looking like I'm crazy. I'm like that's what I did on because I'm a person. <laughs> right. No, seriously. Right. Like. Right. Right. Protect. Like, and it's like, and it's so important to me. And when I first started teaching, I didn't do that often because when we talk about imposter syndrome, we don't talk about also like how like I didn't talk about this like like with anybody during it, but before I got tenure, I was so anxious. Right. I mean, I sh- I should have started therapy then. I was so seriously, I was so anxious that everything I did was being watched. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I can't tell students, I can't tell students that I'm busy because I'm not going to seem like as a good teacher. And part of it was internal, right? I was also always trying to prove myself in this space. That's also what it means to be a minority in this kind of space. I'm always proving myself. So I had to like unlearn that. And once I got that and I got to this freedom where I was like, "Mm mm-mm. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not proving to all like my colleagues that I have more credentials than that I know seriously that I know more than now, right? That I'm like needing to be in this space because I can say that I'm not answering emails on Saturday and it doesn't. And I remember talking to a colleague about it, and and this also used to happen early like in my career. I would talk to a white colleague about it, and if they disagree in any way when I told them this, I would check myself and be like, should I be doing this? And I'll be like, yeah, I don't answer emails on Saturday and if they were like really you weren't afraid that and then I'd be like damn well should I be answering these emails on Saturday right and I'm no. like nope I'm not doing that you're not and right and like I do protect that particular like you know time I also don't answer emails after 5 p.m. from anybody and you guys I'm, I, like I'm just not doing it I'm like I'm not responding past this time I'm tired I, like, I do a lot when I'm there, right? I'm very productive when I'm at work, so I'm not answering emails at 5, 6, 7, 8, 12. Uh-uh. We got an email, me and Lou, recently from somebody at 12.30 at night. I was like, okay. <laughs> Seriously, like, I'm not, I'm not doing that. But also, the second piece of advice would be like, I wish someone would have told me this earlier, was that, like, we know more than so many of the folks that hold power in our institutions, 
right? Like, it took me a long time to be like, oh, wait, you don't even know. Like, when you said earlier, Tracy, that it takes a lot of energy for like, them to, like, dismiss a whole body of work, I disagree because it don't take them no, no, it don't take them no energy. They don't think they're dismissing a body of work because they were, just, there's they no were, value in well, it. Well, because, you know why? Because they were able to get to this point in their academic careers without, without that, right? That's yeah. what astonishes me, and I love to talk about It's just like, they, no, I love to talk about it with them. They were able to write, they were able to do graduate coursework without ever engaging this body of work. And they were able somehow at my institution to get on rotation list to teach these subjects. These courses. To teach these subjects. Yes, they were. To create the course. Right. To create the course. So not only did they not right have to do it in grad school, they were also given. Talk about being given, right? I should tell them, welcome to my house. Because you, <laughs> right? Because African-American is my house that you were able to create and teach in without mm. ever engaging in this work. That's what astonishes me. Like, not just the resistance we got for educating them. And I know it's snarky, but I do this often when I, like, when I talk to them. I love to talk authoritatively about topics that they don't know. Like, I'm educating you with this coffee meeting. You think you're going to tell me something when we have coffee. But actually, I'm going to, like, share with you what you don't know. I'm teaching you. I use those words all the time. I'm like, yeah, because you're undereducated in this. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. You should see my you emails. burn them up. I'm like, there is, like, you are, there is a knowledge deficiency you have. <laughs> oh, I love using language like this with them. Oh, it's, it's like the favorite part. Not of the my shimmy. Day when they she shimmied her shoulders and everything. I'm like, she I'm got into it. <laughs> you have a knowledge deficiency in this, and that's the problem. I'm like, right. the real problem is we can't talk about this right now because you aren't, you don't have enough knowledge. Mm. So now I give them like a reading list. I'm like, why don't you read this? <laughs> Or I'll be like, all that my class, or all that Tracy's class, or all that Lou class. I'm so serious I do this. Mm -hmm. And I'm like letting them know. I'm putting you on notice. You don't know this. And that's why we can't converse on this topic. And I'm like, and talk to me later when we can because you have been able to do this for so long. And because you have, it's like this false expertise they think they have. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's my duty at this institution to expose every time I can that you don't right and it's real easy to do it's like our students right because it's so surface start mentioning some names to them dropping some names some books right some like like some concepts and they're like oh wait you don't know this so stop talking to me about it stop leading college-wide discussions about it stop getting mad about something you don't know right it's like with our students in class you can't debate something you don't know so you got to know about it and you can't learn about it if you don't value it they don't value critical race yeah theory. that's the piece that's part of it that's they don't the value piece. it yeah. right and i compare a lot to like i don't hear you come like you know talking about feminism is a crackpot theory and then I educate them on how feminine, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, so let's talk about those overlaps of critical race theory and feminism, right? I'm like, would you, do you think bell hooks is crackpot? No, seriously, <laughs> right, 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 right. Making yeah. those overlaps because I'm on lots of committees with these folks. So I'm like, when we on the, like, because like they hate intersectionality, studies, like they hate that language, right? But we right? want gender studies committees together. Right. We created those courses together. Right. I'm like, on those email threads, we, we create, like, we, like when we created those courses, you weren't questioning that theory. But now we on this one. You're like critical race theory. What's that? It's a whole program now. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to our house. <laughs> Woo. No, I'm, um, I mean, yeah. In regards to bound, like the boundary thing, I'm, <laughs> I'm just laughing because, you know. But I, I think, yes, the, the one other thing I had to learn, and me and Deb go back and forth with this often, um, outside of just the time and just like 
things get shut down at a certain time. You're not going to call me at crazy, crazy times of the day and night and about crits and stuff. It's also um, knowing your battles. Mm. <laughs> right. So that's Deb's battle. <laughs> right. She's equipped. <laughs> Right, because well. that's not what I'm fighting. That, that will I will descend into madness, and the ill nana will appear. My battle is I don't go toe to toe with people who are woefully and willfully ignorant, and no matter what I do, they're mm. just going keep because they're not interested in, in shifting anything at any level of consciousness, you know. And I think that that would be something else that if I had to advise anyone, like while you're entering or engaging in these spaces, just be mindful of where you throw your energy to, and mm-hmm. and and you know, is this a waste of time? Like now, I feel like this is idleness. <laughs> right. You know, we're just going aimlessly around and around, and mm-hmm. you're not really interested in raising any levels of anything. So I think that that was something that was uh, a hard lesson um, to learn. And I'm, I'm a loner to a certain degree, but you know, when I talk, I talk. And so I think that at a certain point, I realized, yeah, I'm not talking to everybody. <laughs> right. And I'm not I talking to. <laughs> Stop. I you <laughs> well, that was the point. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, maybe it's my mantra, but <laughs> but you know it is, and and I think my mom. I always think of her whenever I'm talking, also about like how I approached work here at this particular college. She would always say, "You didn't go to make friends; you went for other purposes." And so, as as much as I love that, there were moments, and I think they're beautiful moments when you're able to have authentic, genuine relationships with other people. Those are meaningful, and that's what I throw my energy and weight behind, you know? And those sorts of kind of meaningful conversations that will shift, that will, you know. I mean, you'll know it. You'll know when you're just wasting your time mm-hmm. <laughs> or when something, there's, there's some movement there, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, that, I think that would be another piece of advice to give to someone in their first year, but also something that took me way too long I think, because I started teaching in 2002. Yeah, same. Yeah, 2002. Mm-hmm. So it took me a really long time to kind of consider what boundaries look like, and not just with students, but I think the more you start taking on in life, and you start de- you're, you're wearing other hats, right? Mm-hmm. And so you kind of see things. Some of these hats, I wish I could just take off and unsee what I had seen mm-hmm. before. <laughs> you can't go back. But, right. you know, so that, I would say that that, was, that would be one of the major th- um, pieces of advice to give. And it's interesting because um, I'm, I'm probably somewhere in between you and Deb, right? Like, because like, if you, you can hype me up and then I I will go on the, uh, on a tear, right? You know, but my, my, but just because I am in a space of like protecting my mental and emotional health, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to go back and forth. Um, you're, you're obviously not interested in, you know, enlightenment or anything to that effect. So I'm, I'm just, can't and what I also figured out like the petty part of this is um what's even worse than any of this is our joy Mm. right like our joy is like unnerving right so you know if I'm playing you know my music in my office right and you know my yeah right (laughs) you know what I'm saying like like my joy you know it could be any I could be playing gospel it could be gospel it could be Cardi B I don't know like you know but whatever it is like you know my joy and my peace and my presence and my willingness to protect it and to not allow you is unnerving a lot of times and so i think um that's a 
if, if folks understand that that is a weapon that they have, then um, they they would wield it. I think. Um, so we're gonna wrap this up. So all of this talk, <laughs> all this talk, we 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 wrapped it up. Uh, and I guess then the, all of the, everything that we've said begs the question. So why are we doing this again? <laughs> and I think, you know, why is it necessary for um, our students to see us standing in front of them? Like, because if we really like, you know, bringing it down to like the bottom line, like we're there and we're teaching, right? So why is it, why do we endure what we endure? Why do we do it? I know some days we're like, I don't know why, you know, but like for the most part, like, to return it back to the first question, why do you remain? Why do you stay? Why is it important for students to see us standing in front of them? I think for me, I'm really devoted to transforming the spaces that my students um, like are engaging in. I don't, I don't have a God complex. I don't think that I can transform higher ed spaces so that students of color can feel safe and bring more of their authentic selves in it overnight. But to me, that's what always brings me back to the work when I'm tired. It's like, I know that that's what I'm doing, right? Like my goal in all, even even with the projects that I choose, right? The reason why um, I like, I'm not complaining or I'm not like, I went and like I'm wearing too many hats is every project that I'm doing speaks to a mission that is so close to my heart. It's so close about, especially at, a, at like at the MSI that I teach at, like it's so important that my students experiences are different than what mine were in college and that they like and they like and that we are creating progress in a way right like that this thing has to change I don't want if if you do a heart talk in 10 years for the faculty they had the same kind of experiences that we are sharing at this table right now right like my purpose at in this space has to be that I'm transforming it in a way, right? That as much as I can, like, I, like I can vent to Tracy and Lou, I also need to feel like at every turn that we are making progress, right? That this is for something. I'm arguing and fighting and being petty and spending, you know, time on these emails with these folks and reminding them that this is my house now. All of these things, <laughs> I'm doing all of this because I'm so committed to transforming this space for students, right? Their college experience needs to change. And, that is always where my home is. So when I'm just like, I'm up this time of night sending these emails out to these folks and I get, you know, my friends are like, why are you doing this? It's because I'm that committed to it. I talked to a colleague of mine who I've who's been teaching the same amount of time as I have. And we were talking about careers in the future. And I, and I opened up and was like, I don't know what, you know, I'm going to be doing in five or 10 years. And he was shocked. He's a white male colleague. Um, and I was like, I don't know what. And he was like, our students need you, Deb. You can't not teach ever. And I was like, I don't know if our students need me. They need faculty like me, which is what I'm doing. And if I can do this in different capacities, I won't feel like I'm like leaving. He was trying to guilt trip me. He was really guilting me into this. Like, you know the state of our students and all that. And I kept thinking to myself, like, I don't have a God complex. I don't think what I'm doing in this classroom is exceptional. I don't think it's phenomenal. I don't think it's extraordinary in any way. And that's not me being humble. It's me telling the truth, right? Like, if I'm doing this job right, I'm helping other faculty do what I do in this classroom so that students can have, so that so that they don't leave the college experience thinking I had one. That's what I had, right? My why in the beginning was my one African-American lit teacher out of my four years in undergrad who inspired me. If I'm doing this job right, they not just saying I had the one. They saying I had Dr. Oves Primus. I had Professor Gidges. I had 
you know, uh, uh, Professor Lucia Gabaya Conga. I had doc. I stop, stop it, stop it. I had Doctor Love. I had my like my three fellows that are going to be hopefully going up for hiring next year, right? And they're going to say I had this dope creative rhyme professor, Doctor Amaria Sanchez, who's part of my diversity fellowship, and this becomes normalized for them, right? Remember what we said before about not just that if we want to stop feeling questioned in class, we have to show our students. We, we have to change their narrative. So much of that comes from them normalizing incompetent black leadership, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I taught in a school district. So much of that comes from the fact that they are not seeing consistent, competent black leadership, right? So when you don't see it, your expectation when you see folks that look like you is like, I'm getting a dud, right? I'm getting this, I'm getting that. But if we transform the space where they like, Dr. Love class is dope. Even when students complain to me about the folks that I'm talking about, this just happened the other day. They were like, yeah, so-and-so isn't like you. Um, He doesn't write the context on the board. And I was like, so you adapt. I was like, because he's dope, right? You just said how much you like him. So you adapt to his teaching style. It's not this whole idea of he's not doing like you, so he's bad. It's this is college, and you're going to adapt to his new teaching style because dopeness comes in different. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Showing him variety and diversity within, like within us is a passion of mine, too. So I'm, like, always standing from, like, my folks, like, yeah, and you should be adapting to this because, like, look what you're missing if you keep on comparing. And so-and-so does this, but I want them to do that. And I'm like, but you missing so much. Talking about joy, they missing the joy of us when they focus on, you know, this white professor does it this way, and I wish you did it this way. And it's like, stop. <laughs> Right, you should be able to get a variety and we should be trying to transform their experience so that right, like this becomes normal to them. Having competent professors that look like them, they teach in different ways, that cover all this content, that are expertise, that code switch, that are authentic in their spaces. That's another thing we didn't talk about yet, but I mean during it, but that's also something that I'm like always trying to show them. You I, I can be all these things, I can be ratchet. And know my stuff. I call it sophisticated in class. <laughs> they love this, but I do it on purpose. I'm like, you need to see that it don't have to come in this one package, right? It's important that they hear your music and this trap one day and gospel the other day, and it's like this all comes in an academic package because they don't see all of that. So for me, my why is still like you know about like my first why, which is I don't want my students to have the one experience. I don't want them to leave this institution that I'm teaching at and just being like I had this one great black teacher to me that's that God complex thing that my colleague was trying to convince me of that like you have to be like the one I'm like I ain't trying to just be the one that's the problem right like we should be creating multiple vast diverse experiences for them and that comes from us like recruiting and having the fights Mm -hmm. and just to kind of piggyback off that that whole God complex thing also takes our colleagues off the hook I don't have to step up. I don't have to be present. I don't have to learn. I don't have to grow because they got you. <laughs> That's just that. But for me, for my why is I teach in a edu- school of a college of education, and because I was in the in the classroom for almost a decade, and I know that these predominantly white students are going to go into all kinds of classrooms and teach my babies. That's what I call them, the little babies, like K to twelve babies. Part of the reason my experience in college was what it was is because of the teachers that I had in that K-12 to time of my own life. And so for me, the why in dealing with the politics and dealing with the assumptions and the stereotypes is if you have me or someone like me as your education professor, as your advisor or whomever, you won't go into the K-12 classroom and do harm to my babies. 
whatever they look like, but especially the ones that look like me. You won't throw a kid down in a chair or call the cops on a child because that happens. You won't go and talk about, oh, this parent is not engaged because, you know, they're five minutes late for pickup. You will have a little more empathy, a little more cultural competency in what you're doing as a future educator. And hopefully that will transform the lives of some other babies who will then grow up to be big babies. And and then for me, it's like, you know, I'm trying to catch it where once you know better, you hopefully will do better. And I tell my students all the time, it's not my job to turn you into me or anybody like me, but I'm going to teach you in a way that you have to make a choice about what I'm giving you. And once you know something, you can't unknow it. And if you're making a decision to unknow it in a way that does harm, you got to live with that. And so my why is very simple. I teach future teachers. And because I've been in the classroom and I'm one of the few people in my department who's actually been in a classroom, which is a whole other thing. We didn't talk about, you know, that whole expertise, not having it. Um, I want to make sure that those people do no harm to my babies the ones born, my kids, I have kids who are in school, and the ones who are not born, brown, yellow, whatever, because our kids are being sent to prison, or worse, because of education. You know, that's uh, this question, this question. I don't, I don't know, I, but what, what my mind keeps circling around is this um, quote, I think, by Molefa Kefe Asante that got kind of brought up when we were developing the Black Studies program, and it was um, being um, owners, not renters, mm-hmm. right, of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so as you were talking, everyone was talking, like, my, that's what's circling around in my mind. That, and I guess that's the mantra, that I love moments where students, they're reminded of something that they've either forgotten mm-hmm. <laughs> along the way about themselves, about, and, you know, about anything, really, along, along the journey. So I think for me, and because I'm curious, that speaks to a lot of the stuff that I do, that if you can... If there's a way that you know students are able to get some sort of agency when they leave your class in whatever shape that takes, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever form that takes, that that's that's what brings me back, and and that they're able to give that to me as well. Mm-hmm. I think really more than anything else, aside of colleagues, the students and what I get from them is what you know makes me like move like any everything could be falling apart in life i get into the classroom it's just me and the students and there's something i get from them it's almost like therapy in certain ways especially with specific classes and so um yeah i think my mind is just circling around this idea of um being able to and not physically own but just know that you you know there's some power there's some value there's some worth that before all of this You know, there was, you know, there was something in in you before life started falling apart, before anything, before, you know, that slavery is not your departure point. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? That that there's something kind of bigger out there in you, in the world and in you. And and just relearning all of that. I mean, a lot of the amazing writers from the 60s, 70s, African or not, that I've ever followed. It's all that's what it's all centered on getting back to yourself. You know, after all this trauma and all of this, how do we decolonize education? Right? How do we decolonize our language? How do Sankofa right go back and get mm-hmm. it? That was another phrase that was good. so those I think that movement is what keeps me keeps me doing the work I do regardless of where I go, (laughs) it keeps me doing the same because if I'll be honest, it's been the same type of work I've always ever done. Mm. It just has evolved and looked different. Mm. 
Yes. Yeah. So I, I think for me, that's, you know, one of the important things and one of the, I guess, beautiful parts of the work that we do, just like what you get from the students mm-hmm. when they hear new courses, new ideas, mm-hmm. they see something that's connected. <laughs> You know, even if you say something in class, right, mm-hmm. you know, that they didn't expect you, <laughs> they didn't, you to say. Sometimes when I have my African students in the class and I say something in our, in our language, they are, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Just even those small things, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, are meaningful, I think. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I think this question would be a lot harder for me um, to answer you know, kind of like, why am I, st- in light of all of the, the bad, why am I still there? Um, if I hadn't made a choice to try to, as much as I possibly can, be my authentic self in, as a professor, to, to choose every day to walk into my classrooms as the fullness of who I am and all that comes with that. I, so it just reminded me, um, I just recently uh, got my hair done and I walked into the classroom uh, with like faux locks and uh, my side of my head shaved and my <laughs> my students was like yes honey yeah. come on in the door <laughs> oh what's popping this weekend Professor Tracy you gonna come in here with you yes and it, it's so funny because I started laughing and just my heart was full and it wasn't they they weren't like out of bounds you know right, out of bounds right, or anything right. um but you know I flipped my little hair <laughs> like that and it was really like a moment that I I can't say that I would have had had I been so caught in like should I wear full looks like oh my mm-hmm. god like you know that they said my look was too wild you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying like you know if I had had chosen to um make myself small you know, as a result of all that stuff that we were talking about, like if I had chosen to do that um, and I brought that into the classroom, that my students would not, number one, not see a free a free black woman standing in front of them, you know, but also that I wouldn't be able to be free in front of them. And so I think that's what keeps me going is like I get a kick out of like I, you know, teaching certain topics and, and flipping it. Yeah. Like, you know, like I had a student come for me and I'm like, okay, so you, you're not really um, aware of what I know, right? Like, <laughs> you know, and so like we had like this really interesting dynamic, this conversation, and um, he had to pipe down because like you know I, I you know I know this stuff, and right. and then I can turn right around and we can have a whole conversation right. about you know something that would maybe be considered trivial in in the academic world. So um, I, that's what I think. It's like the opportunity every day to just be free in front of them to teach especially the my black women students Mm. to teach them that they can you know um is important to me so um it sounds like we need to do a part two (laughs) because a couple y'all said oh and that other thing that we didn't talk about and then that one thing that we didn't talk about (laughs) and i hope we get back to so apparently this needs to be a part Part two two. a two-part series so but because (laughs) as the church folks say i want to be respectful of your time (laughs) I am going to uh, wrap it up here. So I just want to thank all, man, like all of you all for all three of you for just um, sharing your hearts on Heart Talk, um, because I just feel like, you know, um, there's sometimes stories that just go unheard. Like we just put our head down and we grind and we do our thing and we teach Um, as Rita Pearson, one of my favorite uh, uh, educators used to say, we teach anyway, you know? Um, And so, um, you know, I'm just grateful for all of you. So thank you for stopping by Heart Talk. Yay, thank you for having us. Yay. This was great. Thank you. Yay.
thing. Heart Talk is written and produced by my mommy, Tracy Michelle Lewis Jiggins, for Heart Space and New Season Books and Media. Go to hearttalkpodcast.com to learn more. See you next time.